Thank you, Christina, for donating that. Matthew chapter 13. I just, uh, this morning, as we uh, look at this next parable, it's just a small parable, but I want to read the next two together because they kind of go together, and we'll be looking at the next one uh, next week. But uh, because they both kind of are encompassed uh, together, and it's better if we read the text together. So look at, I'll read along with me as I, I begin to read in verse 31. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air and the nest come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them. That is, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open the mouth, my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. You know, this morning as we read that short little parable, I want to remind you that small things can generate large results. If you think about it, all the music that we played this morning, tried to play this morning, (laughs) was from eight notes. Just eight notes. Any symphony you ever listen to, Bach, it doesn't matter. It all comes from eight notes. It's pretty... Incredible when you, when you stop and you, you think of that. The different kinds of music, the different styles. It just starts with eight simple notes. Or you stop and you think of all the things that have been written, all the books, all the speeches. Everything that's been written in the English letter has all kind of come down from somebody putting together 26 letters in a certain pattern. There's one scientist who is a Belfast-born mathematical, mathematical physicist. And what he did was Lord Kelvin, he hung a huge piece of metal in his lab. And he got some distance away from it, and he took little wads of paper about the size of a pea. And he sat back and he started throwing little wads of paper at that huge piece of metal that hung in his lab. And at first, the paper just bounced right off. And after a period of time, as he kept this up, eventually that huge piece of metal began to swing from the result of that little piece of paper hitting it time and time and time and time again. Sometimes, small things can create huge effects, huge results. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see where something that started out so small has an incredible effect on people throughout the ages. Well, let's give us a little bit of background before we just jump into this parable. Because if we just pick up right here without any kind of review, you might be a little bit confused. So you have to remember that the the disciples were those who follow Christ. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, 
The Messiah means anointed one. Uh, He was the son of David. He was the promised king that they've waited for and that he would set up his kingdom. That's what they were expecting. They expected the Lord Jesus Christ to come in glory and in power and and show and demonstrate that he was truly the Messiah. And he did that to some extent. But things began to turn. The tide began to turn on Christ. And when things were not happening exactly as the disciples thought or expected, what they do? They began to question and say, could this really be the Messiah? Is this really the Messiah? Because we didn't think things would work out this way. Um, and sometimes that's what we do in our own lives. We're trusting God through all the good times, right? But then the bad times come. Things don't work out the way maybe we think they should. And all of a sudden, what do we do? We begin to question God. Are you really in control, God? And even though the disciples were continually reminded by Jesus in a variety of ways that he was the Messiah, they still struggled with that. Even in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they were still asking Jesus this question, Lord, is now the time you're going to send up, set up your kingdom? Is now the time? And it took them a long time to realize that the kingdom isn't about now. It's going to come later. It was kind of postponed, you might say. Because all their expectations got in the way. And so the disciples heard the Old Testament prophecies and everything that would come and and all those who would uh, reject God because of um, who he was at the time, he would postpone that, that kingdom till later. And the disciples basically became confused. They thought, wait, Jesus is supposed to come, the Messiah is supposed to come, he's supposed to set everything in order right now here on earth. And all of a sudden, those who opposed Christ began to multiply in number. And all of a sudden, they were more than even his followers. And instead of talking about what he would do to them, Jesus started talking about what, he would, what they would do to him. And instead of taking over and setting everything right, he began to say things, you know what, they're going to kill me. And the disciples couldn't understand that. They had a hard time understanding that. And when Jesus said at one point, I'm going to die, Peter said, Lord, no, it's not going to be this way. Remember? They couldn't get it. It They couldn't compute that. And think about it. If you were one of the disciples when on on Palm Sunday, when they were riding into Jerusalem and everybody was screaming, Hosanna at the top of their lungs, the son of David. And they're throwing down palm branches in front of Christ and there's this... Millions and millions of people exalting his name. His disciples are probably getting a little excited at this point, thinking this is when it's going to happen. This is when the kingdom's coming. And then, basically, he says this, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. (laughs) What, What an ending to a big fanfare. And they're probably scratching their heads going, what's he talking about? Let's do it. Let's take the kingdom. Let's, let's have the kingdom right here now. They were looking for a kingdom of glory, a kingdom of power, a kingdom of majesty, of majesty, of worldwide wonder. And they were looking for a kingdom where anybody who rejected the Messiah would be immediately destroyed and judged. That's what they expected. 
And when that didn't happen, they began to ask questions. And what happens is, in Matthew 13, Jesus begins to explain to them through stories, through parables, about this time even that we live in today. We're living in the same time, really, that the disciples lived in in their day. Because the kingdom isn't here yet. We're still looking forward to the kingdom. That's when Jesus Christ will come at the second coming and set up a millennial kingdom here on earth. He'll rule and reign here on earth. That's going to happen. And so they're scratching their heads saying, we don't understand this form of the kingdom. As a matter of fact, I think it's in verse 11, Jesus refers to it as the mystery kingdom. He says, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. This time period between Christ's incarnation and Christ's basically second coming was kind of a a mystery to them in a lot of ways. And when Christ was rejected, they couldn't handle it. They didn't know what to do. And so Jesus begins to help them out and encourage them a little bit with some parables. And we've looked at these parables. The first parable was the parable of the four kinds of soil. And there was three of those soils that didn't receive, remember, the message of the king. So that kind of indicated to us that there's going to be rejectors in God's kingdom. There's going to be people who actually reject God, reject Christ within God's overall kingdom. And we still have rejectors today, right? In most of the world today, um, the message doesn't get in. (laughs) They don't get it. It's that hard soil, that wayside soil, or maybe it's the rocky soil, or maybe it's the weedy soil. Those three kinds of soil that don't receive the king or his kingdom. And so their question was, what's going to happen to those people who are the blaspheming rejectors? What are we going to do with them? They wanted to do something with them. Let's, let's take care of them, Jesus. And they were thinking that because they were loyal subjects to the king. They were doing just what a loyal subject would do. They believed that Christ was the Messiah. These people are rejecting you as their king. Let's take care of them. Let's take care of business. Remember Peter in the, the garden. What did he do? He pulled out a sword. He was ready to go to battle. Well, in the second parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares, it shows us that kingdom citizens and rejectors, Jesus says, that they're going to be together. They're going to be kind of growing up together until the harvest, until the judgment comes. And Jesus made it clear, and we talked about this last week, that we are not to be the executioners. (laughs) That's for the angels. He explains that in that parable. You can read that when you have time. Our job is to be the wheat in the midst of the world so that hopefully we can influence the ungodly for Christ. We don't want to go around pulling out weeds, tares, they're called in the the parable, because how do you know if someone's a tare or someone's a wheat? How do you know if someone's a Christian or a non-Christian? You really don't know. You may be able to look at their life and get a simple idea, but you may not know for sure. And so we're not about to be about the business of going around judging people's hearts. That's left up to God. And that's what's wrong with a lot of Christianity throughout the history of the ages is some Christians in some churches believe that, you know what, they're not believing like we should, so we're going to just take them out and they're going to go kill them. And there's actually been Christians who've been slaughtered. We talked about that last week too. 
in the name of Christ because they didn't believe like the other group. So they were cast out as unbelievers. We're not to be making that kind of a judgment. The kingdom is going to be full of rejectors. And so now the disciples are saying, you know what? This is not going to be very good for us. (laughs) If you're saying, Jesus, in this last parable, that the sower goes out, the enemy comes, and he sows tares among the wheat, and it's the idea that it's thoroughly throughout. It's, it's mixed up so bad that he even, he said, don't go try to pull them out now because you'll just you'll destroy the wheat. That's how thick the weeds are, the tares are. And he says, don't go out and pull them out, just let them grow up together, and once the harvest comes, let me sort it out. And so now they're thinking, gee, if we're having all these tares grow up with us, all these enemies, all these rejectors, and you're not just going to, you know, kind of, hit them with some fire, or or do something to judge them right away, isn't that going to affect us, Jesus? Won't it choke out the life of the kingdom that we're supposed to be living? Isn't it going to strangle the power that you have in the world? And so Christ answers those questions in parables 3 and 4, and that's what we're going to look at today. And if you stop and think, it's very natural for these guys to be overwhelmed at this point. Here they were following the Messiah. Everybody at one point, was kind of following him. He was healing everybody. Do you know that there wasn't a town that Jesus went in where there was probably not a a healing that took place? He healed all the sick people in the countries he went in. Amazing display of his power. All these people were following him, and all of a sudden, as we read the gospel account, they begin to reject him. The religious leaders do. And they convince the people, basically, that he is even from Satan himself. They blaspheme Christ and all that he's doing. And they're at this point thinking, you know what? We are the kingdom of God in the world, and the odds are unbelievable. How are we going to do this? Aren't we just going to be destroyed? And so Jesus responds to their fears by trying to encourage them through these parables that he tells. And what he's trying to get across to them is, look, this kingdom is going to have a very, very, very small beginning. As a matter of fact, guys, you're looking at it right now. You 12, one of you is going to go AWOL. You're going to be it. After I'm out of here, I'm leaving this in your hands. So you're right. It's going to be very tough for a while. It's going to have a very small beginning, but in spite of all the opposition that's going to come against you, ultimately, you're going to influence the whole world. You 12 people. You 12 men. And so this parable here talks about this conflict. The first two parables talk about the conflict. This parable talks about kind of the encouragement that they're going to receive. Well, let's look at Matthew 13 and see what this says about this, this parable here. Um, there's different ways that you can look at these parables. Um, one commentator says that the first parable basically talks about the breadth of the kingdom, where the seed is sown in the field, and the field represents the whole world. It's, it's huge. It's, 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 that's how big the kingdom is. The second parable talks about the length of the kingdom. In other words, it's going to go on until the harvest time. It's going to continue. The third parable, which is about the mustard seed, talks about the height or the extent of the kingdom. 
And the parable of the leaven talks about the depth because leaven goes into something. And it's hidden in the dough. But the world will eventually, will eventually, uh, eventually be influenced by it. And so the kingdom is described in different ways. But let's look at this first, this first parable just today, the, the parable of the mustard seed. And let's look first at the, the parable of the mustard seed really reveals the external power of the kingdom, and the parable of the leaven reveals the internal power of the kingdom. So it's coming at it from both sides, inside and outside. Well, as he looks at this, introduces this parable in verse 31, it's about a farmer. It says there very clearly, another parable he spoke forth to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, notice it says, is like, not is a mustard seed. That's very important. We'll get to that in a second. But is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. All right, so he introduces this parable, and he says, basically, it's, it's a story about a guy, a farmer, that goes out in his field, and he takes some mustard seeds, and he sows them in his field. Now, mustard was used for a lot of different things in that time period. It was used in medicinal purposes. It was used to flavor things. It was used as an uh, uh, oil. There's a lot of different uses for the mustard seed. Today, we think of it as what? French's mustard, right? I mean, on hot dogs. You know, I, I doubt they eat hot dogs, okay? So they probably didn't use that mustard for things like that, but they did use it for flavoring. And so they, they, he picked something very common to them. They all understood what a mustard seed was. They all understood what it looked like. It was something they dealt with every day, and that's how Jesus dealt with people. He always related to them basically where they're at at their level. Well, look at the potential that's illustrated in this little, tiny mustard seed. It says there in verse 31, or verse 32, it says, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, this particular mustard seed that's being spoken of here, when it grows it becomes usually a bush or a shrub. That's the normal size of a, of a mustard seed plant. If you go around the property here, you'll see some bushes that used to be bushes, but they're not bushes anymore. I mean, they could be called trees. All these things out here, outside these windows right here along, uh, along uh, McGarvey, they're basically overgrown bushes. They're overgrown shrubs, but they look like trees. I mean, they've got six-inch, you know... Um, Trunks, thank you. Six-inch trunks on. So, I mean, you know, you can't just go out there with a little pruning thing. I mean, you've got to get a chainsaw and cut them down. Same thing over here when we cleared this out for the air conditioning. There were bushes there, but they became trees. I mean, they were the size of trees. Well, this is what he's illustrating here. He says, even though this bush normally grows to maybe a height of seven or eight feet at the, at the biggest, that's a good-sized garden plant if you have a garden, it's in the herb family. Occasionally, he says, it'll grow to the height of 12 or 15 feet, studies tell us. And so there's certain phrases that people use that there's even uh, stories where they tell of a horse and a rider riding under the mustard tree. It's not a tree. It's just a plant that's overgrown 
and it looks like a tree. So the mustard seed can become a very large bush, almost like a tree. And you can plant, you know, you can, you can uh, ride underneath it. That's how tall it could be. So he's pointing out the fact of this parable, but it's not, it's not an exaggeration here. That's an actual thing. That actually happened back in that time. So none of these parables are exaggerations. I don't want you to think he's like, you know, exaggerating to make a point. He's not doing that. They're realities that are known by the people that Jesus was spoken to that he was speaking to. So in verse 32 there, Jesus says that the mustard seed is the least of all seeds. It's the least of all seeds. Now, a lot of people who don't believe the Bible, critics of the Bible, point this out and they say, oh, see, this says that the mustard seed is the least of all seeds. That proves that the Bible's not inerrant. That proves that because we know that as we study plants, that the wild orchid seed is actually smaller than the mustard seed. So therefore, the Bible's wrong. Therefore, Jesus didn't know what was truly the smallest seed. And if he didn't know that, then he's not God. Because God is supposed to know everything, right? Or, the other argument says, he simply accommodated the parable of the knowledge of the people, and he accommodated their ignorance that the mustard seed wasn't, in fact, the smallest seed. In other words, they didn't know of the orchid plant, so he just kind of accommodated that. Well, that doesn't pan out either. So when Bible critics find something they believe to be false in the Bible and say that it was written only to accommodate what people at the time thought was true, they call the Bible, obviously, inaccurate. And they say, therefore, Jesus couldn't be who he said he was. Well, how do we answer this question? The critics say Jesus was wrong. I don't think he was wrong. If you study this out, you'll find very simply there's an explanation here. Jesus was right in what he was saying. The word grain there in verse 31, when he says a a mustard seed, okay, mustard grain, mustard seed, and in, in verse uh, and seeds in verse thirty two, they're both from the the Greek word, which which basically says just that it's it's a seed that's used for agricultural purposes. In other words, he's speaking of seeds that they would actually grow to eat. They're intentionally planted seeds that they would raise to be able to eat somehow, to either flavor something or to eat literally like a tomato plant or a carrot or whatever. And the word herbs in verse 32 refers to those garden vegetables that are grown specifically for the purpose of being eaten. And so when we see here that he refers to seeds and and herbs, he's referring to something that you would grow in a garden for the purpose of eating. He's not referring to a, a, a flower garden. He's not talking about those kind of seeds. He's referring in general to seeds that you would grow up in a garden which you would eat food from. And so the, the seed being referred to here in this parable then is a seed which was sown agriculturally in that area to produce something edible. And all of the seeds, actually at that time in the East, all of the seeds that are sown today to produce edible products, do you know the mustard seed is still the smallest of all of them? 
So in context, what Jesus is saying is absolutely correct. The mustard seed is the smallest seed. And if you doubt that, you can check out certain people who are far more expert in that area than I am. I plant something, it dies. Ask my wife. You don't want me planting your garden. But there's a Dr. Shinners from the Southern Methodist University in Dallas. And they have one of the, the biggest herbariums there. And they raise all these herbs and all this stuff. They have 318,000 specimens from all over the world. And this guy's apparently a regular at the Smithsonian Institute, and he lectures on plants and all sorts of things. And he says this, The mustard seed would indeed have been the smallest of those likely seeds to have been noticed by the people at the time of Christ. The principal field crops, such as barley, wheat, lentils, beans, have much larger seeds, as do the other plants, which might have been present as weeds. There are various weeds and flowers belonging to the mustard pigweed and chickweed families with seeds as small or smaller than mustard itself, but they would not have been particularly known or noticed by the inhabitants. Those weeds and wild flowers were not planted as a crop. See, isn't that neat that even in the smallest detail, Jesus is right. He's absolutely correct in what he says. This man goes on, he says, the only modern crop plant of importance with smaller seeds than mustard is tobacco. But this plant is of American origin and was not grown in the old world until the 16th century and later. So when Jesus said that the mustard seed was the smallest seed sown by man, he was absolutely correct. Now, in verse 32, they continue their dispute because it says there, when it is grown, the greatest among herbs, it becomes a what? A tree. The plant they say mustard plant does not become a tree. There's no such thing as a mustard tree. Well, once again, he's not talking about trees here that you get timber from. He's talking about something that's like something. He's talking about a shrub that's so big it has the properties of a tree. Matter of fact, verse 32, one of those properties are what? It says even the birds can, of the air can come and nest in its branches. So we have bushes around here that... You know, these, these birds nest in all the time. And they're not really trees, they're just overgrown bushes. So they take on the characteristic of a tree. That's what he's saying. Birds can live in a mustard bush. The branches usually are large and they're firm enough to hold the bird and everything. And so he's, he's absolutely correct. It's interesting there in verse 32 when it says he'll, they'll lodge or they'll nest in those branches. That, that means to make a home there. It means those birds could actually build a nest and stay there. And the mustard bush grows big enough for that to actually allow that to happen. Um, now remember, he's thinking, he's speaking here in parables. He's think, speaking kind of as a, in, in proverb style, you might say. He wasn't trying to give a lesson in botany and plants and, and all that. That's not his purpose. So you can't look at it that way. He's just giving an illustration. That's all he's doing. And maybe there was a big mustard plant that grew into the size of a tree, and he said, see that mustard plant there? Well, look at that. You know, it started from a small seed. That's his whole point. I mean, we use Proverbs today a lot of times. 
If you think somebody's really, really smart, you're wise, you say that person is as wise as a what? An owl, right? I mean, that's, it's not, you don't mean that they're an owl. You don't mean that, you know, that's not right. But we use Proverbs like that. Um, we use them all the time. And that's basically what he was doing. So he's using the illustration of a mustard seed to bring out a point that uh, from very small beginnings, something very large can actually take place. Um, so what does this mean? I mean, that's, that's basically what the, 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 the parable says. Okay, what's the interpretation here? How, do we, how are we supposed to know what this means? Because if you notice, he doesn't give any interpretation of this parable. He doesn't give us anything. The first two he does. But in this one, he just kind of leaves you high and dry. Well, not high and dry, really, because we have the Holy Spirit, and hopefully the Holy Spirit, with God's word, will quicken our minds to hopefully understand what's before us. But he doesn't just explain it like he does the other ones. But here, at this point, you can imagine the disciples are looking out at the world and they're looking at all the animosity that's coming against Christ, and they're probably thinking, you know what? There's just a handful of us against this whole world, Jesus. What are we going to do? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way at your job? Maybe you're the only Christian there. Have you ever felt that way in your ministry or whatever? I know I have sometimes. You just feel like, man, is this, is this thing working or what's happening here? But you know what? Jesus says, that's fine. You just be faithful to what I've called you to do. You let me take care of the results. And so here he's saying that, you know what? The plan is that the kingdom is going to start out small. As a matter of fact, it's going to be so small, you're not even going to recognize it. That's what he's pointing out to them. And so they kept on asking him, where's the kingdom? Where's the kingdom? Where's the kingdom? Over and over and over again. And just as this parable of the mustard seed, this little seed turns into something that's incredible, well, that's exactly what he shares with us through this parable. Turn over to Luke chapter 13, or 17, Luke 17, verse 20. I just want to read this little section for you. Luke 17, verse 20. It says here, now when he, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. See, even they were asking Jesus, well, when's this kingdom coming? You're saying you're the king. You're saying you're bringing the kingdom of God, the kingdom of hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, when is this going to happen? And he answered them and said, what? The kingdom of God does not come with, what's it say? With seeing or observation, right? In other words, you can't see the kingdom of God. Not in this form. Because this is the mystery form of the kingdom of God. And verse 21 goes on there, and he says, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is what? Within you. Wow. In the midst of you. In other words, what he was telling them was, hey, you knuckleheads, the kingdom of God's already here. It's right in front of you. You're not recognizing it. Because it started out as something so small, just like a little mustard seed that starts out, but it has the potential to even become something like a tree where birds can come and nest in it. I mean, think about it. Even Christ, when he came to earth, was it a big deal? 
It wasn't really a big deal, right? It wasn't a big show. I mean, his birth, he was born in a manger in a stable among smelly animals with a stable floor probably covered with manure. He was born in obscurity in a country that was nothing but an infant kind of wiggling around in the arms of Rome. Israel had just Judea and Galilee. That was it. Just little dots on the earth. Along with Samaria, another small region. And Jesus spent some 30 years of his life among uncultured, uncouth, uneducated people in a town called Nazareth. That's why when he came on the scene, they said, how can anything good come from there? And so, you think of Jesus' beginnings, you think of the disciples, this ragtag group of guys that Jesus threw together. I mean, they were probably the most inadequate, inconsequential, unqualified, fearful, faithless. Jesus is constantly questioning their faith and weak leaders that there ever were. And yet Christ chose them. And yet the kingdom was still planted. And that little infant that grew up in that manger became our gift of eternal life. And eventually will bring his kingdom here to earth. And that's incredible truth for them to understand because it wasn't revealed to them in the Old Testament. By the time Jesus ascended back to heaven, think about it, it started with 12. By the time Jesus goes back to heaven, there was, Bible says in Acts 1.15, about 120 believers. And then you stop and you think about, okay, then someone preaches a sermon and 3,000 come to Christ. 5,000, and it just multiplies like crazy. And that's what the Bible says. In Psalm 72, verse 8 to 11, it says, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, look at this, and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust, and the kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents, and the kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all the kings shall fall down before him. All the nations shall serve him. That's the extent of this kingdom that's coming. That's how big it will become from this little seed. And that's what Jesus wants them to know. He wants to encourage their hearts. Isaiah verse 50, chapter 54, verses 2 and 3 says, Enlarge the place of this tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of your inhabitants. And it goes on and it says, And the, the seed shall inherit the nations. See, the Messiah's kingdom shall extend from shore to shore, from one end of the globe to the other. That's not a question. That's a promise. That will actually happen. The Bible says that. Even in Revelation eleven fifteen, it says the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of Jesus Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. So it's even going to swallow up the kingdom that we know around us here today. Incredible. And so these parables even take us into that millennial kingdom when we recognize the fullness of the kingdom with Christ. I mean, a lot of people thought after they killed Christ, what would happen? What would happen? It just kind of fizzle out, right? 
some of those crazy disciples would give up and everybody would go home. Well, it didn't happen that way. I mean, that's a good question for someone. If, if God, if Jesus wasn't God, and if Christianity isn't a true religion or whatever you want to call it, and it's not the way, the truth, and the life, as Jesus said, why is it still around? It's probably one of the most opposed religions the world has ever seen. But the kingdom will continue to grow. That's what God says. And that should be encouraging to us. In spite of all the negative stuff maybe we see in our families, in our marriages, with our kids, this world we live in, all the stuff, that should encourage us to to know that God is going to continue his work. It's easy to get discouraged sometimes. But stop and think about it. Even today in countries, people are preaching the gospel and people are coming to Christ. Maybe one, two, three, ten, fifteen at a time. Whatever. Don't get discouraged. But sometimes we feel like the battle is so intense and we feel like we're such the minority. I mean, you just look at the political landscape and it's very frustrating sometimes if you focus on that. I mean, imagine how the disciples felt. Here they have these 12 guys, their leaders being blasphemed in their presence, and then he's crucified, and he dies. And then he leaves them, goes back to heaven. It seemed like the kingdom was coming, and then all of a sudden everything was just ripped away from them. Well, this planted mustard seed is going to grow. The planted word of God will grow in the hearts of people. And according to this parable, it became a tree. Well, some people say, well, okay, what does, when it says here that these birds are going to come and nest in the branches. Now, before the birds came, remember, where the birds were before in the first parable? The birds were the enemy, right? And they came and they they ate the uh, seeds off the, the wayside path. What do the birds represent here in this parable? Some people think they represent demons, some think... People think they represent evil, and that's the reason, because they represented that in the first parable. They don't always represent evil in the Bible. They don't always represent Satan when it speaks of birds. So in the parable of the mustard seed, what are they? Are they just illustrations? What are they? Well, first of all, I think when it says the birds come and dwell in this mustard seed plant, this tree... It's really telling us that this this tree grew into something large that can accommodate them. The seed, the tree, is is a source of food for the birds. They eat the mustard seed, so they don't have to go get worms or whatever. It's all right there. It provides shade, it provides protection, it provides security. In the Bible, sometimes kingdoms are kind of referred to as trees. In, in Daniel chapter 4, look in the book of, of Daniel with me in chapter 4, verse 10 to 11. Book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, world leader basically of his kingdom back then, has a dream. And it starts in verse 10. And this is just to illustrate the aspect of what a, a tree and these birds may represent. It says, thus there were visions of mine that I had in my head. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height of it was great, and the tree grew and was strong, and its height reached onto heaven. And the sight of it 
to the end of all the earth. So it's a pretty big tree. Its leaves were fair and its fruit much, and in it was food of all, for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in its leaves, and all the flesh were fed from it. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and then Daniel interprets the dream. And here's what Daniel says the interpretation is. Look at verse 20 and 22. It says, The tree that you saw, which grew and was strong, and whose height reached up unto heaven, and the sight of it to all the earth, whose leaves were fair and its fruit much, and in it was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon those branches the fowls of the air of the heavens had the habitation, the birds. Here's what he says. It is you, O king, thou art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reached unto heaven, and your dominion to the end of the earth. What was Daniel saying? Daniel was saying, look, king, this dream that you had, this dream was a dream about an empire that became like a tree. And all the nations of the world were finding comfort in that tree, in that nation, because it grew so big. And back in that time, Babylon basically brought culture, education, architecture, prosperity. It brought a sense of peace to the world. And so everybody was dwelling in this tree that represented the Babylonian Empire. And there's other examples. The Assyrian Empire, the same thing. In Scripture, in Ezekiel 31, you can read about that on your own. But these little nations, which needed protection, they needed provision, they needed security, they often sheltered themselves in the branches of these world-dominant world powers. As a matter of fact, look at our own country. I mean, basically, we have been traditionally a Christian nation. Getting a little away from that, but we were founded that way. And the United States has traditionally been a tree in which other nations find comfort. They find shelter. Well, that's the secular illustration. But what's he talking about when it comes to Christ's kingdom? What's the spiritual illustration here? What he's saying is the kingdom of Christ is going to grow so big that all the nations, all the peoples will find shelter, they'll find protection in God's kingdom. The birds in the, the mustard bush aren't necessarily a part of the kingdom. They're just benefiting from the presence of the kingdom. Sometimes people will be married and they're married to a non-believer. They're married to a non-Christian. 1 Corinthians 7.14 basically tells us that as a result of being married to a believer... If you're a non-Christian, you're going to reap the benefits as God blesses that believer. You're going to reap those benefits simply because you're married to them. Now, that's not to say you should go out and marry non-believers. It's not dating evangelism or anything like that. That's not encouraged. But you will, if there's a Christian in a household, God blesses that household. Even though you're not a believer, you may reap the benefits of that. Well, he's saying here, basically... There's going to come a time when Christ's kingdom is so large that even the average people who, who aren't part of that kingdom will dwell in its branches, and they're going to find security there, and they're going to find you know, uh, necessity there. It's like when God reigns on the earth, water, it, it blesses everybody, right? It's called common grace. It doesn't just 
bless the Christian's garden. It blesses everybody's garden. Well, that's what he's saying here. Can an unbeliever benefit from God's blessing? Sure they can, when they're in the presence of a believer. That's very clear. And so the kingdom of heaven on earth is the same thing, only on a much larger scale, you might say. It's going to get really, really large. And so what is God teaching us in this parable? It seems like it's kind of an abstract thing, but what he's trying to do is he's trying to encourage us as believers. He's saying, you know what? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is it's like a mustard seed. In spite of these bad soils, okay, that are going to reject, in spite of the tares or the weeds that grow up all around you, even though it started out really, really, really small, this kingdom is going to continue to grow. And the Christians, in the end, in a nutshell, are going to win. That's what he's saying. So don't be disheartened. Don't be discouraged. Even though it looks like things are on the down, they're really not. Because one more day passes, the closer we get to the real kingdom of God coming here to rule and to reign here on earth. But the kingdom is going to continue to grow. Uh, That's the promise the Lord makes to us. And so we need to change our mindset from, oh, we're just these poor little group of Christians trying to hold down the fort. No, beloved, we're on the winning side. Okay, I read the end of the book, we win. So we need to kind of adjust our attitude a little bit and not walk around kind of like we've been sucking on sour grapes or whatever and and begin to share the message that Christ has called us to share because it's a winning message. It's a message that will allow people to come to Christ and experience forgiveness and his grace and his love. Don't be discouraged. People are going to reject it. Christ says that. You're going to be rejected when you share the gospel with people. And the unfortunate thing is today, a lot of people are dumbing down the gospel. They're making the gospel something that's not. Just a little happy story about Jesus and how he wants to make your family better or whatever. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is is that you're a sinner and you need to be saved or else you'll end up in hell. Like the weeds ended up in hell. That's the basic thing. And, and, And to repent, to turn away from your sin, and to come to Christ and Christ alone, as we sang earlier, for your sin for your forgiveness of your sin. That's what a Christian is. And until you come to that point in your life, you may be benefiting from the presence of a believer, but you're not part of the kingdom. You're like a bird that's just hanging out in a tree, and you're benefiting from that tree, but you're not part of that tree. And that's what he's trying to teach us. Next week, we're going to look at what the internal power of the kingdom is expressed through the parable of the leaven. But uh, let's bow in a word of prayer and we'll close this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I I pray that um, even though your kingdom starts small with a kind of a ragtag group of 12 individuals and one of them went AWOL and and didn't follow you, Lord, we we thank you that we can be part of a kingdom that's going to eventually dominate the whole world. And so, Lord, we cry with John Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would bring your kingdom to its fullness. And we pray that men around the world might realize that even though they're just, maybe they're not trusting in you, that there's still hope. They can still cry out to you. They can still turn to Christ who can bless them.
and know that even beyond a temporary benefit here on earth, they can receive eternal blessedness of salvation. And so, God, we we look around, we see our society falling apart. We see man's sin getting worse and worse. seems like everything's going out of control. The gospel is being rejected time and time again. And as Christians, we're unwelcomed in many places. But Father, we thank you for this power that you've given us through your word, and we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that ultimately the extent of your kingdom will be global and will be eternal. Lord, we thank you even for your promise to the church that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Father, we ask that you would remind us of that. We pray for anybody here who's yet to put their faith or trust in you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, that they would realize that there's still time for them to cry out to you. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to understand this gospel that these people are talking about. Show me my need of a Savior. And uh, he'll do that. He'll answer that prayer. Father, we just ask that you dismiss us with your blessing after this next song. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with a song.